Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello, and welcome to the winner episode of Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast with me, Razia Iqbal. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Well, what a year it's been with the long list announced back in September and the six books on the shortlist announced in October. Just a reminder of the shortlist, one, two, three, four, The Beatles in Time by Craig Brown, The Idea of the Brain, A History by Matthew Cobb, Black Spartacus, The Epic Life of Toussaint Louverture by Sudhir Hazara Singh, Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, What War Does to Women by Christina Lam, Stranger in the Shogun City, A Woman's Life in 19th Century Japan by Amy Stanley, and last but not least, The Haunting of Alma Fielding, a true ghost story by Kate Summerscale. For any listeners who haven't been following the shortlist celebrations, do head over to the Bailey Gifford Prize social channels at BG Prize, where you'll find exclusive interviews from the authors themselves, some special book reviews from familiar faces and experts. And of course, we hear from the 2020 Bailey Gifford Prize judges, Martha Carney, Shahida Bari, Simon Ings, Max Strasser, Leah Robson and B. Wilson. And then, of course, on Tuesday, the 24th of November, the prize was brought to you like it's never been brought to you before in a virtual winner ceremony broadcast live on YouTube and Facebook, where we heard from each of the authors and the judges on this year's incredible shortlist. The chair of the judges, Martha Carney, then announced the winner of the 2020 Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction, Craig Brown. Here's the moment that that happened. Hello there. As you may know, I'm chair of the Bailey Gifford Prize this year, 2020, and I'm absolutely delighted to be able to say that you have won it and you are the unanimous choice of all our judges. So many congratulations. Oh, my God. Uh, well, this is a amazingly exciting and uh, unexpected. Um, I'm, I'm very, very uh, happy. I would like to pay uh, tribute to my uh, fellow authors who've gone through this uh, or ordeal we've all gone in our separate ways through this uh, ordeal um, I'd also like to thank my publishers brilliant pub publishers fourth estate uh, especially uh, Nicholas Pearson Robert Lacey and Naomi Mantin for making for being so friendly and enthusiastic and giving the book such good cover apart from everything else and also I hope I can speak on behalf of my uh, fellow shortlistees and longlistees uh, in paying tribute to a great non-fiction writer who, who died last week and gave me uh, sort of pleasure throughout my life, uh, I mean, for, at least for the last 50 years, uh, and that's Jan Morris, uh, a most brilliant uh, writer. And so we're lucky to have had her. Well, many congratulations, Craig, and you end your speech with a typically generous gesture. Congratulations. And I'm delighted now to be joined by Craig, albeit remotely from Suffolk, and I'm in London. Craig, a very warm welcome, and of course, congratulations. Thank you very, very much. Uh, let's start just by um, getting you to tell us uh, what you were thinking the moment your name was announced and you heard that you had won. Well, oddly enough, I don't think I really rose to the uh, challenge. I was in a, I, I was in a slightly... <laughs> because I, I sort of write... I write a, all the day and I had rather a bad writing day so I was still sort of wound up with a bad writing day and I was sort of preparing for disappointment uh, and I'd probably prepared too much so I was sort of um I somehow thought she was saying you've lost or something I, d I don't know what I was thinking um 
But uh, so it's been a sort of slow burning uh, uh, sense of joy for me. I, I felt much happier. Uh, uh, you know, twenty four hours later, <laughs> it was. It's interesting that you say that you that you were slightly taken aback and getting yourself ready for disappointment because you very quickly then um, made a tribute to Jan Morris who had died last week, and 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 I I was so struck by that that you immediately had this sense of of paying homage to to non fiction writing. Well, I'd been uh, oddly enough, I've been I, I've been uh, sort of reading the uh, Pax Britannica trilogy so I think she was sort of in my mind for that and then I'd, I'd looked up a bit of her autobiography sort of that morning so she was in my head but actually um, you know the, the b-side of, of that is I completely forgot to thank my wife uh, you know who uh, uh, for the sort of 18 months I was writing this uh, you know she, she took the brunt of it <laughs> because it was just <laughs> Beatles and, and uh, reading all day and we couldn't sort of go out to parties because I was saying, oh, no, I have to do the book. I have to do the book. Um, uh, yeah, so, so uh, I mean, I'm really, I'm glad I um, uh, thanked uh, or paid tribute to Jan Morris, but I, given the preference, I'd have preferred to thank my wife. <laughs> well, you're doing it now. Um, let, let's go back then to uh, the, the, the beginning of the process for you and, and, and what, you, what was the impulse of writing it? Because I, I read somewhere that you were actually working on something else before you started writing the Beatles book. That's true. I was, um, I was, I, I'd always enjoyed walking the Thames. So I had already walked the Thames once. And then so and then I uh, I was sort of signed up to do a book about the Thames because I thought well I'm really you know I I love walking the Thames why not write about my walk but actually I think I was beginning to think well actually the reason I liked walking the Thames because it was because it had nothing to do with writing also I'm not very good at um, striking up chat with strangers which I think is really what a travel writer has to do and so a lot of my days were spent in complete silence just avoiding people. And that's not that, you know, so my note, notebook would be empty just saying I saw some water and I saw a swan flying over, all that kind of thing. <laughs> so it wasn't getting very far. Um, I mean, I'd written, say, 10,000 words or so, not, not a huge amount. Uh, and then I suddenly thought, God, the Beatles, you know, I, I've spent all my life sort of thinking about the Beatles in a way. Why don't I do, do the Beatles? And I, uh, by chance, I was um, walking with my uh, book editor that day. It was the first time he'd just joined me on a walk. Uh, sort of just getting into London from the source. So I'd gone a, long, gone a long way with my notebook. Um, and I said, oh, I've got a good idea for, you know, the book after this. Uh, and he was immediately sort of switched on to this. Uh, and, you know, and he said, could you get it out by the, the 50th anniversary of the Beatles breakup, which was last, uh, last April. And so I, I, I kind of really... I, I, I switched from the Thames. I jumped the Thames and took on the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you're so glad that you did, because it sounds as though, reading the book, it feels as though it was a really enjoyable book to write. Uh, well, I, <laughs> I never find writing that enjoyable. But, but I mean, I think, yeah, I, mean, I, I think the, what anyone needs from any book is a kind of energy. And especially with the Beatles, because they were all about energy, really. Uh, and so you, you know, uh, if the writing one day is a slog, well, the part of the kind of skill is disguising any kind of slog uh, and making it seem fresh and everything. I'm probably being too, too 
down on myself. I mean, I must. Yeah, I think you are. I really think you are. I mean, I, I, let, let, let's talk about um, let's talk about the, the the choices that you made to write the book in the way that you did, because over over some six hundred pages, we've got one hundred and fifty quite short chapters. What what you're doing is is telling us about the the lifetime of the the band, but and and focused also not just on the Beatles, but but extraneous characters as well. But and I want to get onto that in a minute. But for me, the thing that really worked was just the 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 momentum. There's just this frenzy. You get a real sense of how quick their fame was and how busy they were the entire time. But what I want to ask you about is is whether there was any new research or what 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 was it that you were doing? What what did you set out to do? Because there are so many books on the Beatles, and and we feel that they are so familiar to us already. Yes, um, the, I mean my research was <coughs> was largely reading. I did go to Hamburg and uh, New York and Liverpool, obviously, and actually I did a sort of tour of their London. Uh, I mean, obviously, they they were a London-based band after uh, 1962, um, and so I did a bit of what would be seen as normal sort of donkey work research. But but there, because of this kind of literature of the Beatles and a lot of its sort of um, first-hand kind of stuff, uh, so most of the people who worked for them, uh, their engineer, their press officer, those sort of people, Brian Epstein. Uh, have written autobiographies. Their hairdresser wrote uh, a good autobiography, um, <laughs> and Cynthia wrote two autobiographies. Uh, John's uh, school friend, uh, best friend, sort of throughout his life, Pete Shotton, wrote a very good autobiography. So there is lots of these sort of first-hand um, accounts of working with the Beatles. People who worked at the Apple, you know, uh, Apple Juniors and the Apple thing, girlfriends. Um, so, so there is an amazing amount to sort of synthesize, and so you, I suppose, you could say the previous books, the authors of the previous books, sort of act as my involuntary researchers. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, but I think to to get a new angle, I just had to sort of go uh, from my own perspective, follow my own peculiar interests. Uh, I. I Try and tell the, the basic story of the Beatles because it's it, you know it's a, an extraordinary kind of fairy tale um, story, sort of rags to riches, and then what happens uh, once you get the riches. Um, but uh, that's a kind of backdrop, and then within this backdrop, I I put in any number of kind of odd bods or speculations or. Uh, you know, there's a chapter just on the idea of, of puns, puns in the Beatles and nonsense yeah. uh, and that, that sort of thing. And, and a chapter on hair, since you just mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, hair was the first thing that I, my first memory of the uh, Beatles is, you know, is getting um, Beatles wigs for Christmas. I mean, my brothers and I, uh, and um, they, they were sort of plastic wigs, so they're rather painful. Um, uh, but hair, hair was one of the big things about the Beatles, especially in the early days. Now their their early haircuts seem almost like short back and sides, but then it was seen as very very long. And then it, the hair became a kind of liberating force around the world, and that's not really hyperbolic. That you know, in uh, Soviet Union, Union or in repressive states like um, uh, Indonesia, you know, people would have Beatles haircuts as a sort of act of a proper political uh, rebellion. 
And so hair is one of those areas which is very good to focus on, I think. And, and, I, and, and, and you, you touch on, on one of the kind of overarching things about your book, which is that it is a social history as well. We get a real sense of the impact that they made in different parts of the world and on individual people, you know, the kind of letters, the fan letters that, that they, they received. Um, just really quite hilarious, some of them, particularly the ones from America. <laughs> yeah, the ones from, uh, there are sweet w ones uh, from the kind of little girls to the Beatles. Um, and, but there, there also, I mean, uh, there was a very good, I can't remember what her name is, but there was a, a, a woman who wrote about um, being a groupie. And so she developed a, a, a much more sexual uh, uh, sort of longing for uh, Paul McCartney as, as a sort of 16-year-old with mm -hmm. her friends. Um, and so, so the, the fan letters sort of span an amazing uh, uh, panorama of uh, instincts. I mean, also, the fans, the people, I have a, a section on uh, the musicians who, as children, listened in America or watched in America their first big broadcast, which was a complete sort of world-shattering um, uh, broadcast on the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, and so people like Bruce Springsteen or the Fogarty Brothers of Creedence Clearwater Revival or Patti Smith, they, they were all watching the television at the same time. And they were all sp inspired by the Beatles to, to become uh, pop stars themselves. And, and, and that is such a wonderful... Um... A chapter as well. Not not only do you learn about the impact on people who go on to be musicians, you know, people like Springsteen who said that the world felt like it had changed. You know, we're talking about yes. kind of paradigm shifts that are happening for for individuals who then go on to make their own uh, impact on the world of popular music. But but the Ed Sullivan Show, it, it's it's kind of hard to imagine now, given the kind of plethora of of media and social media. But it really was a huge thing to appear on the Ed Sullivan Show, wasn't it? Yes, I think I, I as far as I can remember, it was seventy million people uh, tuned in. Unimaginable now, mm. when you, you know. Uh, TV producers in England, well, you'd know better than I do, but I think that, you know, they'd be really happy with sort of three million or something. Like <laughs> they um, would. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and so, and also, there's a funny thing that in England, the Beatles' uh, rise was relatively gradual. Uh, you know, once they started recording, you know, it was a kind of a year, I suppose, uh, that they became more and more uh, famous, you know, after Love Me Do, and then that got to number two and, and so forth. But with America, I, I want to hold your hand, had got to number one. So, uh, but then, and they were keen not, Epstein uh, was very keen not to take them over until they were number one. So they had to come. Uh, and then they were greeted at the airport. There was a kind of mania ready to start. And then everyone tuned in to the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, and, and it was all America was talking about. It also came at a, 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 a peculiar time in America that uh, JFK had been assassinated in the November. I think they came in February. And so there had been a kind of people in America at the time said it was like a kind of period of mourning. And someone I feature in the book, The Singing Nun, uh, slightly forgotten figure now, but she was top of the charts with this religious song, Dominica. Um, and so, and then suddenly the Beatles come along, and uh, as John Updike said in another context, it, it was like Easter morning. You know, suddenly the sun seemed to have risen on America again, and the Beatles stood for joy and elation and a sense of optimism. 
Mm. And, I think, and, and I think they were terribly necessary at that time. And, and Joe Queenan, I think you quote as well in the book, as saying that, that the Beatles exactly. helped to heal America. Yes, and so those, those things sound kind of um, overdone, but Joe Queenan's a kind of, you know, quite a cynical uh, character. And I, 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 you know, I trust, I trust his judgment. And his, trust, his judgment was also echoed by other people, that there was a sense of healing. And also, of course, it was the beginning of a kind of generational revolt, uh, and young people were beginning to get money and that sort of, and so therefore have some kind of power. And so, you know, it, it, it started a kind of generational divide, I suppose, but young people suddenly felt full of hope and, and as if they had something to contribute. The, the chair of the judges, Martha Carney, mentioned that uh, one of the reasons you won the prize was because you had reinvented the form of biography. And when I closed the book, I mean, I had many, many thoughts, but among the people that stayed in my head were the singing nun that, that you just mentioned, and I want to talk a little more about her, but also the people who fell by the wayside because of the success of the Beatles, not least her, but but the the act that, um, that appeared on the Ed Sullivan show on the same day, the, the comedy at Charlie Brill and, and Mitzi McCall. I mean, I, you know, right. I won't forget their names because I just <laughs> felt that there was this unbelievable tragedy at the heart of the success of the Fab Four. <laughs> Tell us that story. Yeah, they were a friend of mine in America put me on to them because they were they were doing they were I think they're from uh, LA, uh, sophisticated. They were married young married couple. They're very sophisticated kind of Mike Nichols kind of uh, comedy uh, sort of satirists. And they got they thought, hey, we've got our big break. We're going to be, you know, be on Ed Sullivan. And then when they got to uh, New York where the Ed Sullivan show was being uh, recorded, they saw, saw lots of crowds and they thought this is outside the theater and they thought that's very odd. Um, anyway, they were sort of at bottom of the bill and uh, and the Beatles were the top. Uh, and uh, And... All the crowd was full of uh, sort of TV executives' children, really. There was a slightly VIP crowd, but they're all screaming fans for the Beatles who didn't want to see this kind of the rest of the variety acts. And they particularly didn't want to see, you know, sophisticated humor. <laughs> they wouldn't have got the jokes. So the poor uh, Charlie and Mitzi swiftly tried to change their act. Ed Sullivan was very grumpy with them. Um, and it, it went down like a lead balloon. And so they, uh, they said they, they couldn't work for six months after it. And yet on an, any other uh, night, if they'd been on Ed Sullivan, you know, it would have made their careers. So, so there were these people that the, the Beatles completely unintentionally sort of damaged. You know, they were left sort of washed up just on this huge sort of tidal waves of Beatlemania. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there are people like that who are kind of, you know, unknown to, you know, most people who obviously have heard of the Beatles. But then there are people like Cliff Richard and Helen Shapiro, you know, people who who had been doing really well, but their their fame was eclipsed by by the kind of centrality of the success of the Beatles. Yes, I'm glad I, I focused on Helen Shapiro in particular, because each chapter I wanted to have a sort of a story to so 150 chapters, and they, I, I wanted each to have a, some kind of direction. And Helen Shapiro, who uh, sounds like a very nice person, but she she was 16. I think she was younger than 16 when she first became famous, and so she was younger than the Beatles. And she was top of a bill of a kind of touring show, and they were sort of eighth down, almost o opening act. 
But during that time they were touring, which is only a, a couple of months, uh, they were rising in the charts and becoming kind of uh, you know, super famous at the same time as, as she was going down. Um, and uh, actually they were very sweet to her. And John, who wasn't always sweet, was sweet to her because uh, she one day they were on the coach and they saw, and she was reading it, I think it was Daily Mirror, and it, was, uh, it had a headline, uh, is Helen on the wane or some, was something worse than that. Uh, and so she had to cope with this feeling of being eclipsed uh, at the age of 16 when most other people are sort of starting out. Uh, and I, so I think it was very hard for her. But, and, but like a lot of people, you know, she, or like Charlie and Mitzi, you know, she's, she got on and I think her kind of uh, character saw her through. But um, there are sad stories along the way. Mm, there really are lots of sad stories. And the, and the book opens with Brian Epstein and, and ends with him. Um, and we obviously all know what happened to him. But it, it, it does strike me that, that it, in terms of the shape and the arc of the book that you've written, that, that, that Epstein is a figure that, that you actually are drawn to quite profoundly. Uh, yes, I, I thought he was a completely intriguing figure. And I start and end the book. Actually, the, the chapter repeats it. Itself. So the first and last chapters are the same. Um, uh, so it starts one, two, three, four, hit him going down the 17 steps uh, of the Cavern Club. Uh, he was a classical music uh, fan, so he'd much rather have gone to the uh, Liverpool uh, Philharmonia. Uh, but he, uh, he, uh, he ran his, father, his family record store. And so he, he'd heard about the Beatles. They'd actually sort of lingered and loitered in his shop listening to records without buying them. Um, so he went down and, and, uh, and it was an extraordinary moment, this random moment. He goes down the stairs and actually he's kind of, he thinks it's ghastly in a way, their music, but he, he recognizes what I was talking about, this, this extraordinary energy they had. And he obviously re realizes that it's, it's the sound of the future in some way. And it makes, both makes his life uh, in that he becomes the most successful manager of the most successful group in the world. Um, uh, but it also wrecks his life because, uh, unlike the Beatles, um, he can't really cope with it. And then he can't... Uh, he's taking far more drugs. He always looked to the rest of us uh, like the, the sort of sensible, serious one in the, uh, in the sort of larger group. Um, but actually, he was taking far more drugs than they were. He had terrible depressions. Uh, he was gay at a time when you, it was illegal to be gay. He had, when he was a drama student, that's been arrested. Uh, came from this sort of uh, middle-class family in Liverpool, uh, Jewish family. You know, it wasn't approved of. Um, and I think he kind of never came to terms with his own character. And, and so I think he, he's an important, it was a super important figure in the Beatles. And, and I wondered if you also worried about um, what you wrote and how you wrote it, given that there are three people at the heart of this story that are still alive, Ringo, uh, Paul and Yoko Ono. Uh, yes, I, I mean, uh, Yoko, Yoko is not quite at the heart of the Beatles story. I mean, she is towards the end. Yeah. I do cut, cut it off in 1970. Um, I mean, there are other people like Jane Asher who are still alive, but I, I think I, I, uh, I didn't, I didn't, I'm afraid I'm, I'm kind of 
ruthless as, as a writer, I suppose. <laughs> I, think, I think most writers are. You know, I wanted to tell the story as I wanted to do it. I, I wasn't worrying, oh gosh, would Paul disapprove of that? But in some ways, I'm a kind of hard-bitten uh, journalist and that, you know, I, something like Private Eye I've been writing for for 30 years, parodying a different person every fortnight during those 30 years. Well, if I was all the time thinking, oh my God, what will they think? You know, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't produce anything. I mean, it's not, uh, that's, it, it is actually, I'd say, rude about uh, Yoko over a sort of long uh, chapter. But um, uh, Ringo, I've got great appreciation for, uh, you know, both as a musician and as a kind of Dr. Watson figure, as the kind of the earth, earth figure uh, uh, of just sort of saying the normal thing. The nor- he's like the normal bloke in the band. Uh, and, and Paul, um, you know, I have uh, almost unbounded admiration for. Is he your favourite Beatle? Uh, yeah, I think. I mean, it's traditional. Without every, nothing, right? It's in a normal. Everyone has to have a favourite. It's been, you know, it's a, it's been a tradition since 1963. You've got to say who's your favourite. Uh, and I think you know, the Beatles wouldn't have been the Beatles certainly without John and Paul and the extraordinary spark between them, the competitive spark, friendship sparks, sparks of all kinds. Um, uh, but I, I, I. I do really admire Paul, not just for his amazing melodic ability, which is a kind of genius, I think, um, uh, but also just the way he's kind of coped with life and the way he's sort of uh, survived the Beatles and, and perhaps more difficult, survived life after the Beatles. I, I love how you, um, you you end the book with the quote from Brian McGee. Does anyone seriously <laughs> believe that Beatles music will be an unthinkingly accepted part of daily life all over the world in the 2000s? That was in 1967. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that was, I had put that at the beginning, and I thought, well, that's a kind of funny way. Because they, they are so, in the early days, especially in America, wherever they went in America, they'd have a press conference. And there was always someone who said, when will the bubble burst? It was, and they, made, they started making jokes, you know, you're going to ask, when will the bubble burst? And they all thought the bubble would burst. Ringo, you know, they all had plans for what they were going to do. Ringo was going to open a, chair, a chain of hairdresser shops uh, in the Northwest. Um, and, uh, and then the bubble never did burst. And the bubble sort of now includes the world. You know, it's got bigger and bigger. And it's, it's, and it, it's quite obviously is never going to burst. Because I think if it, if it lasts 50 years, you know, it'll last forever. And, and now, you know, children of six can, would know uh, at least 10 Beatles songs. Just people imbibe the Beatles. It's ex- an extraordinary thing. Craig Brown, many congratulations. And thank you so much for speaking with us today. Well, thank you very much. That's all we've got time for, and it marks uh, the end of this episode, our final episode for 2020. Now, to keep up to date with the latest news about the prize and for more information about this year's shortlisted books, uh, do follow at BG Prize on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also sign up for the newsletter on the Bailey Gifford Prize website. We will be back in 2021 to continue our monthly discussions on nonfiction writing. We hope you'll join us then. And as ever, a big thank you to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for supporting this podcast. Till the next time. Bye bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.